the first state, the diamond state, home of President Joe Biden, the world's corporate capital. Delaware is known for a lot of things, but its identity can't be painted with a broad brush. There are three counties, each with its own unique character, and within each, towns, neighborhoods, and individuals with their own ideas about what it means to be a Delawarean. This season, the Delaware Humanities podcast, A More Perfect Union, explores the concept of identity, what draws us together as a state, what keeps us apart, and how we can ensure all perspectives are heard. This podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to strengthen communities by encouraging all Delawareans to be inspired, informed, and engaged through exploring the diversity of human experience. We thank the National Endowment for the Humanities for its support as part of its A More Perfect Union initiative, designed to demonstrate and enhance the critical role the humanities play in our nation, while supporting projects that help Americans commemorate the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence in 2026. A More Perfect Union is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware source for NPR News. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the A More Perfect Union podcast. I'm your host, Tom Byrne. After taking a broad look at Delaware's identity in our first episode, this second episode looks at culture and community in the first state. A recent U.S. News & World Report analysis ranked Delaware 14th among the states for equality among genders and racial groups. And while we are making strides, few would argue that systemic racism and discrimination against underrepresented groups has been eliminated. To discuss how that's created barriers for some and how to eliminate those barriers, we are joined by Allison Parker, chair of the University of Delaware History Department and co-chair of UD's Anti-Racism Initiative. We are also joined by Jalissa Coriano and her son Noah Duckett, co-founders of Orgullo Delaware, an organization that provides resources to LGBTQ plus Latinx individuals and families. Both are also clinical social workers working with those communities. Thanks to all three of you for being here with us today on the A More Perfect Union podcast. We often hear about efforts in a variety of areas to do more to promote diversity and inclusion uh, or make sure that underrepresented communities are heard and given needed attention here in the first state. And I'm, I'm curious, and I guess, Noah, we'll start with you. How would you grade these efforts here in Delaware based on, on your experiences? That's a great question. Um, I think that there... There, there are a couple of different answers to that and a couple of different layers to it, right? I think that um, Delaware does a really great job of verbalizing that we are affirming and welcoming and that we're inclusive, right? Like, I, I, I feel and I know a lot of people feel like Delaware really is like a very community-based place. Delaware is a great place to be. Delaware is a place where um, you can really be yourself. And I think we're great at talking about that. I think that we are now in a place where we're really, we're really catching up to like prove that logistically, prove that. Um, in the systems that we have in place. Like I've always appreciated that Delaware is one of the first ones to always speak up if something happens. You know, I noticed that um, if there's like discriminatory legislation in another state, if there's something like politically going on, Delaware always right off the bat is like, we stand against this or we stand for something or whatever. Um, And so we're now in a place where we are like catching up our own processes and catching up our own laws and catching up um, our own systems that we have to make sure that people are able to like access the resources they need and make sure that they can really like build a life in Delaware versus just talking about being in Delaware. Um, and so I always give Delaware an A because I love Delaware so much. 
Um, but if we're if we're being critical, I think I think the way that we speak, the way that we handle things um, out loud is great. It's perfect um, or near perfect. And the way that we actually have the behind the scenes systems in place, the things that um, we're making sure that we have everything in order could be better and we're working on it. So let's, you know, there's always room to grow. If that's a, if that's an answer. <laughs> Julissa, do, do you see some, some, some areas that you feel need, need the attention? I, I, mean, um, I think, yeah, I think Noah just explained it perfectly. Delaware is such a great state. I love Delaware. I think we, um, it's definitely a state that I feel and I hear from other people that they can settle here and be here and be safe and secure. We all have that commonality that we want to be safe and secure, um, raise our families um, and, and just be peaceful. And I think Delaware definitely is that state. Um, and Noah's absolutely right. We are one of the first states to always speak up when there's discrimination or where there's something that needs to be changed. We are we are seeing um, major changes when it comes to underserved and marginalized communities. So remember, my communities are the undocumented community, the LGBT community, and the sex traffic community. So I'll speak from that perspective. Um, we are seeing some major changes there. You know, it, it was. Um, we have access to birth control. That was a legislation that was passed that we have access to birth control for everyone. Um, also anti-LGBT discrimination. We're seeing those kind of laws right now. Um, in 2015, um, the state of Delaware passed the Tarjeta de Conducir, which is major for our undocumented community, right? And so that means that yes, you are undocumented in the state, but you are gonna be safe and able to have a driver's license right. and be able to have uh, insurance for your car, um, which helps all Delawareans, right? So that was passed in 2015. Um, and so I see that major changes are happening that way. And I'm really proud of the state for, for what we're doing. Of course, there's still work to be done, like Noah said, but we're doing great, great work. Allison, I want to jump in and give you a chance to, to weigh in on the, kind of the initial question, which is you know, how you would grade the efforts here in the first state um, to promote diversity and inclusion and make sure that underrepresented communities are, are indeed heard. Yeah, I completely agree with both Jalissa and Noah about this, that we are in a good position in the sense that we have um, a supportive base on which to start a lot of this. And another example would be the fact that our legislature passed House Bill 198 to teach Black history in pre-K through 12 schools at a time when even just thinking about issues surrounding African-American history um, caused people to talk about critical race theory and be all afraid of what the students are learning. So in fact, our legislators are pretty brave about that. And we had people like Representative Dorsey Walker who did a great job of standing up in front of us and, and doing that work. And then um, Representative Medina Wilson-Anton, you know, as a very young black Muslim woman um, who is representing us in the legislature. These, these are really incredible um, steps, but they are just steps um, in a process toward really transforming our society and making sure that we really implement a lot of these things. And we, we do see incidents of different kinds of discrimination and hate around the state. It, it's not like that doesn't exist. We have had um, incidents um, of anti-Asian 
comments and flyers being put up around um, UD, in fact, in the the uh, community in Newark mm-hmm. um, at the beginning of the pandemic, which we uh, condemned and the UD Anti-Racism Initiative has a committee that specifically works on combating anti-Asian hate. And so, you know, there are these places where we clearly need to do a better job but we have a foundation to work from. You're all talking about, you know, the need to do some more things that, and I guess one of the things I want to touch on is, is, you know, maybe what's, what are some of those areas and sectors that you feel someone's identity could significantly impact their access? Because a lot of the discussion is around access. You know, do these communities have the same access as other communities or all communities should have. Um, are there some sectors, whether it be jobs, education, healthcare, that that you feel that that access is, is an area that could be one of those areas you're talking about improving and, and building on what it seems to be a, a solid foundation? Uh, Noah? Yeah, definitely. Um, and so this, this really goes back to the original point of like what we have um, written versus what we have in practice, right? And so my area of focus is really centering around like LGBT health, reproductive health, access to reproductive justice. Um, And so if you look at Delaware, we have a lot of great things on the books, right? Like we have um, abortion as a right is codified in Delaware. We know that like if Roe v. Wade ever gets overturned, that will not go away in Delaware. That's great, law-wise, right? We also know that um, Governor Carney did mandate for like Delaware public health plans like Medicaid and Medicare, that they do have to cover gender affirming healthcare. That's great. I love that this is like a law, right? And so we have all these things that are written of like, we promise it's so great. And then the actual ability to access it is not always possible yet, right? And so we know that, um, you know, in Delaware saying like, okay, we can, we're going to pay for gender affirming healthcare and for gender affirming surgeries. And also we don't really have that many surgeons in Delaware that provide gender affirming surgeries, right? So like a little bit of a loophole, uh, but Delaware also has been great about like doing single case agreements to send people out of state. But the whole point is like, we want Delaware to be the affirming place where people go, where they can get their care, where they can stay here. We don't want to always outsource things, right? Um, And so I think that there are all these things that we need to work towards of like, yes, of course, we say that like legally we're affirming. And also I'm going to say the vast majority of our medical providers, our clinicians are like not focusing on LGBT health or affirming healthcare and are definitely not like officially trained on it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there are all of these ways of like, we like, that's really a lot of the work that Orgullo Delaware does of like going and meeting with providers, meeting with clinicians, meeting with organizations um, and getting them up to speed on even just like basic level gender and sexuality one-on-one how to be, affirming how to you know change their intake paperwork their signage um, and making sure that like we really are serving all Delawareans regardless of what that looks like regardless of what your you know your educational background is and how you learn how to treat patients um, and so it's there's just that that little bit of a gap right of yes I know that on the books I can see Governor Carney release a statement knowing that I'm welcome here and also it's really hard to find a primary care doctor right or it's really hard to find like a dentist that for some reason isn't making this about my transition or if I mark on a form who I'm married to, if that becomes a thing, right? Um, or about my documentation status, my ability to pay, my insurance status. Um, and so I, I've historically been able to notice that gap of what we say, what's on the books, which is great, that's important, and also what we're able to actually provide. So there is there is this gap between saying people are welcome, as you said, but, also, but, the, but the actual feeling of it in your day-to-day activities. And Allison, I'm, I'm, I'm curious if you see that in some other sectors and in, in some of the work that you're doing. Where, they're, they're, where that access isn't quite as 
smooth as it should be? Yeah, I think one example is um, that when we created the UD Anti-Racism Initiative, which is a grassroots initiative on the campus at UD to address um, racism and really think about how it works and um, interrogate how it's playing out on the campus, um, one of the committees that we created was on DACA and undocumented students. And um, the person who's leading that uh, committee, Sonia Robles, who's a professor in the history department and who focuses on Latinx history, she uh, found and had a, a symposium that was public and many people attended from the community and the university uh, that, in fact, DACA and undocumented students are charged actually higher rates of tuition because they're um, amazingly enough considered uh, foreign students, even if they were, you know, raised in uh, from most almost all of their lives in Delaware, mm -hmm. um, they don't get. Uh, in to in uh, in state tuition rates, and it turns out I th that we are we're trying to figure out how to deal with this situation, and it may be that in fact we have to take it to the legislature as opposed to that it's something that UD can fix on its own. But um, these are the kinds of things that we're trying to both expose, right? Figure out what is there a problem, and then figure out what the next step is, and then also we had some really brave. Uh, students who came and spoke at the symposium and one of the things that they felt afterwards is that even though they were brave and spoke about their own personal experiences and how it was to be um, either receive DACA or be an undocumented student that they um, were kind of traumatized by the experience of having to go public like that or even though they offered and wanted to do it so then now we're also trying to see if we can get dedicated um, counseling in at UD in the counseling office. And there are some people there who might be able to kind of take that up as a specialty so that there would be somebody who has some experience and background and knowledge on this. So these are the kinds of things where um, there are links between the kind of work that Noah and Jalissa are doing um, in the broader community that we're also trying to do at UD. Jalissa, I wanted to ask you, I mean, Noah talked uh, a fair amount about, about health care challenges that face, um, you know, the communities that, that you work with. And I'm curious if there are other ones specifically with the LGBTQ plus community that um, are unique challenges that they face and, and maybe what struggles someone might experience if they have multiple parts to their identity that are from historically excluded communities. Sure. So we see in the work that we do intersectionalities, a lot of intersectionalities, right? And so one of the sectionalities that kind of brings all of this together is LGBT or particularly transgender, um, undocumented Spanish speaking individuals in the state of Delaware. And so as we know, um, as Noah just stated, it's a little bit um, it could be smoother for transgender individuals to receive medical assistance and, and um, help. Um, and we also know that in the state of Delaware right now, um, that individuals who are undocumented do not have access to medical insurance. And so we come across that intersectionality of what do we do to help, right? And so where if I'm a transgender individual who is a citizen of, of the United States, a resident of Delaware, I can go to Christiana Care and receive medical 
um, gender affirming hormones. I can definitely go to Planned Parenthood and receive that. But if I'm undocumented, I don't have that same medical coverage. I don't have any medical coverage. So I've actually have had clients who are receiving illegal um, hormones in, from the back of like restaurants. And so, you know, and trying to see what they can do so they can be well in this state and in this country. And so it's really frustrating for that. And so there's so many layers right now. Um, House Bill 317 was just passed out of the um, Senate Health and uh, Social Services Committee that will cover all Delaware children that are uninsured under the age of 21, which is fantastic, right? We hope that the additional layer will be that will include transgender individuals as well under the age of 21. And then it becomes the next layer of um, helping everyone else who doesn't have insurance, undocumented or documented. And so it's a, it's a work in progress, but we're definitely doing it. In terms of um, the victims of sex trafficking, which is also a community that I work with that is absolutely marginalized, um, Meet Me at the Well does an incredible job working with this community as well. They, um, that particular community is so guarded, as we know, right? And so going to a medical doctor and not being able to actually provide an address is, is something, or provide an ID um, is something that is a barrier for them. So it's just really trying to, to see how we can work together to, to make this smooth for everyone. No, I want to follow up with you real quick on this point. Um, you talked a lot about kind of what we hear from uh, the state, and, and that is it is a welcoming state, and there is, there is the efforts to, to be inclusive, uh, yet there's these, these barriers. Do, do you find as, as you try to work through these barriers that, that there is a need to, to let people know that, you know, yes, while, while we're saying all these things, we, you need kind of that, that boots on the ground action to, to follow suit. Is, is there a disconnect there with people feeling like, well, we already said we're inclusive. We're already doing things that, that, that they need to understand that, that there really does need to be more needs to be done. There is, there definitely is a, a bit of a disconnect with the boots on the ground, us, the individuals that are doing the work every day um, and those who um, are not. And so all we can really do, what I try to do is just really hammer it in and just try to be connected to as many communities and elected officials as, as possible to say, this is what's going on. This is what we need. Um, and, you know, hopefully people join the fight. It's my in my communities, particularly the three that I work with. They're not very um, politically. Um, how do you say like connected? Um, yeah. And, you know, and that goes to I guess that goes to the point of like, you know, do, do you feel that they that these groups, they need they need a seat at the t a stronger seat at the table or any seat at the table? They definitely do. They absolutely do. And we're working towards that. But again, it just comes down to like um, Allison was saying, it's a trauma. It's an absolute mm -hmm. trauma to come forward and say, I'm documented and I'm transgender. We're seeing a huge backlash right now about transgender athletes. As we speak at this right. moment, they're discussing um, Bill 227, right. um, which is um, basically preventing transgender athletes from um, from participating in sports. So how traumatizing is that, that I'm coming forward and I am putting myself on the line and having courage to speak about what I need, right, and what my needs are for this community and to be in this state, and then just be traumatized and then not really have the resources and the boots on the ground people there to support me in this. 
And so it's a risk. It's a risk for everyone, right? Allison, I want to pick up on this point with you uh, real quickly. As as co-chair of UD's Anti-Racism Initiative, uh, you know, and you've talked a little bit about this already, some of the work that you're doing. How important is that kind of work to, to making this kind of real and significant progress uh, as opposed to you know, just doing kind of the token actions or the, you know, I guess in a lot of ways what we're talking about is the, the things that are kind of lip service. We, we pay lip service to this, this inclusion. How important is it to have these kind of dedicated initiatives and, and, and finding some of the things that you, you've noted that you're finding as you're digging a little bit beneath the surface? Right. I think it's really important to take these extra steps. And, you know, there are so many different examples. Um, one example would be when we created an indigenous programming and social justice committee and started working really closely with the Delaware, uh, Nanticoke and Lenny Lenape tribes and working with them on um, thinking about what are priorities. And we started with something that was in effect lip service, but is also really important, which is um, crafting together with them a land acknowledgement that basically acknowledges the fact that um, UD is sitting on land that was originally um, part of indigenous and native territories. And so um, there's that, but then that is lift service if we left it at that. So then we created an action plan, you know, in each of these committees to try to kind of think about what the next step is. And in our case, um, some of the key things that people really wanted to do is provide more support for Native American students. Um, But one way to do that was to try to create positions on the campus for uh, staff who would work with the students who were potentially um, either Native American themselves or trained to work in that community or both. And so um, we're starting to see some movement on that kind of thing where there will be actually people in place to try to help uh, create programming, but also um, a community that feels uh, safe and welcoming. And so those are the kinds of things. There's a much longer list, but you know, just one step at a time, those are the kinds of things that we're thinking about. No, I'm curious. Do you feel like there's efforts like the anti-racism initiative at UD that could address uh, LGBTQ plus or Latinx communities in, in, in that kind of more formalized way? Um, or are there other steps you think that could be taken to, to, to provide the same type of focus that, that Allison's talking about that they're doing on the anti-racism initiative at, at UD? Definitely. So I think really the key part of what Allison is talking about is partnering with the people that we're serving. Right. And so I think a lot of times we talk in these abstract ideas of like, oh, my gosh, all right, we have to help these people. We tell this community they're, you know, underserved, they're underrepresented, whatever. Let's put together a big group of people that have no connection to the community that have read about them in textbooks or read about, you know, stuff that they see online. And we're going to make a bunch of decisions for what will make their life better. Right. And then there's no actual community partnership. And at the end of the day, people are like, actually, I like, didn't really need that. Right. They're like, that's not what I wanted. Or actually, there's this like way bigger issue that is way more vital to address that you're completely missing. And so what Allison is talking about of like meeting with people, appointing people even to the head of these committees that are tied to the community themselves. Like we need to understand that one approach is not gonna fit everybody, right? And so I think it's really easy to say, if you have an issue with how you're treated in Delaware with what these laws are, just go talk to your state legislator about it. Just go talk to your state senator, go talk to whomever. 
Number one, I might not even know who that is. I might not know how to access them. They might not speak the same language that I do. I might not feel comfortable going to a government building, announcing who I am and saying that I want to talk to this person. This person might not even be interested in talking to me, right? And so we need to understand that like different approaches for different communities work. And so for some people, they might trust an initiative out of the university local to them and say, okay, I trust that UD is doing good work. I know that professors are part of it. I trust professors. That's who I want to work with, right? For other people, they might not have that that link to a university or an institution like that. And so for a lot of people, it might be, I want to work with, you know, the Latin American Community Center. And that's who I trust. These are people that I know that speak the same language that I do, that are doing good work, that I've been familiar with my entire life, right? And so like, how do we make sure that we are funding organizations, community leaders, community workers, people that are on the ground doing work to make sure that they're able to have the time and space to have like community listening sessions, to have like brainstorm kind of things and then bring ideas forward and then, you know, like work on the actual legislation from there, changes from there versus just saying, all right, we're going to have, you know, one big town hall. Everybody show up to this town Mm -hmm. hall. Also, it's patrolled by police. Also, there are cameras there. Also, there are people on the other side of a debate there that are going to meet you in the same parking lot you know like it doesn't feel safe for everyone it's not productive and then we wonder why we're not capturing everyone's voice because we're not giving them the chance of the space to actually be heard right and so it's it, it really is that like community partnership that's important and understanding where people are and what they need and how they want to be heard and then going from there versus well if they didn't show up they didn't show up it can't be that important and then feeling like i did a good job i did what i could and then moving on it, it has to be so individualized based on who we're working with, which I know is hard, and also it's really important. And I guess that goes back to what we talked a little bit earlier about, which is the idea of having having a seat at the table. And, and a lot of it is just you know where is that table, right? You know, and and you know how do you create a space like that that is that itself feels inclusive, right? Exactly. Yeah. Who's building the table? Who's maintaining the table? Who's opening the door to and from the room? You know, it, we have to make it fit for whoever we're working with. One of the things we talked about in our first episode of this podcast um, was the, the historical perspective on identity. Um, and I'm curious from, from each of you, if you want to weigh in, uh, how important you feel it is to, to celebrate and recognize unrepresented communities' history and contributions. And, and you know, how do we do that? To, because it, it seems like that is a, a piece of this, is, is this celebration of recognition that people feel like they are part of the community. Allison, we, we, we can start with you if you'd like. Yeah, I think there are so many ways to do that. Um, as a historian and as somebody who studies African-American history, uh, one of the key ways is to uncover that history and to explore it in all its depths. And one of the things that we did recently at the University of Delaware is we formally applied to join as an institution the University Studying Slavery Consortium, which is uh, based in uh, out of the University of Virginia, but has members all around the country. And those universities that join it uh, promise to study how slavery and its legacies impacted their own institutions and the people in their communities. And now that may not be a celebratory history, Mm -hmm. but it's a history that needs to be recognized. And it can lead to um, 
if as you move further into the toward the future, the present, there's also more to celebrate. And one of the things that we've been doing is we've been doing taking a two pronged approach. So thinking about the legacies of enslavement and dispossession on the campus, um, one way is to look at the land records to really see um, were there enslavers whose land. Um, was either given or purchased to the university, and what can we learn about those people who were enslaved and those who were the enslavers? And then on the other hand, we've been doing oral histories of Black Delawareans, including those Black students who were able to come to UD once they uh, initiated a lawsuit in 1950 to force the issue by saying that we needed to desegregate. And so that was something that the university uh, didn't voluntarily did, do, it did it under court order. Um, however, those students have done all kinds of amazing things and can be celebrated for the, their accomplishments and their uh, bravery in coming into a predominantly white university and making it their own in various ways. So we have a partnership with the uh, local Delaware UD chapter of the Delta Sigma Theta sorority, uh, the founding chapter members uh, from 1975, especially Denise Heyman, they've been working with us to create a whole project of oral histories and to give their uh, some of their um, material culture belongings and also some papers to UD so that we can um, focus on and celebrate and share their histories. And so we're also working on a story that at the very, very beginning stages with the students of working on what they call a story map where they can do a campus tour that includes all of these histories that aren't necessarily always included on the, you know, kind of mainstream campus tour. And then we're also, of course, eventually going to try to change the tour, but we have to do these things in pieces and, and we have to find ways uh, that pe people can access this. So the tour will first be just about the campus and then include some work that's already been done on um, the areas around the university that were predominantly black and that have been really uh, somewhat decimated really by the expansion of the university in the last decades. And so those are some of the things that we're trying to do to reckon with our history and then to celebrate those histories within it when we can uncover and find them and highlight them. So those are some of our projects. Thank you. And, and, and you know, Jalissa or Noah, are there things that can be done, you know, with the communities that you work with to give people, because I, I feel sometimes that giving people a sense of the backstory, it can help people move more toward inclusion. Is, is there, are there ways that that can be done with the communities that you work with um, to, to create that historical perspective that, that in a lot of ways just isn't there. Definitely. I, if we don't keep talking, right, then it seems like we were never here, right? Like our communities have always been here. We've always been part of Delaware. We've always been part, like integral to the society and the fabric of Delaware, the work we do, the way that we live, the communities that we build, right? And if we only talk about things in reaction to something else, it becomes like tokenism and panic, right? If we talk about access to reproductive health anytime you know a county downstate tries to do an abortion ban then we forget that reproductive justice has been a core right in delaware since Planned parenthood came here in the 30s right that's almost 100 years this has always been part of who we are if we talk about um 
you know, the queer and trans community in Delaware only in reaction to a news story, either national or local, in reaction to a school bill, in reaction to whatever, we forget that we have always been here, right? And so understanding our history, making our history so public and so like easy to talk about, even in the last two years, um, I know that Carol Ann Deal did the first um, queer and trans focused art exhibit at the Delaware History Museum, the first exhibit. Um, oh my gosh, that was only in the last two years that we've, in any of our museums, have ever had something so focused on our long, beautiful, exciting history as queer and trans people in the state of Delaware and the contributions we've made, right? And so that's so important and it can't stop there, right? Because I think that a lot of times if we're thinking about like queer and trans life in Delaware, we're thinking about like Rehoboth, which is great. There is a beautiful, strong community there. And also it turns into like a, a vacation or like a like a, a brief kind of thing. You kind of go to the beach and then you, you go home wherever that is and then you like stop enjoying this part of your life. Um, or we look at Delaware as like a stepping stone to, okay, I have to leave Delaware and go to like Philly because that's like the closest like affirming place near me, right? Like we create, we turn it into like, we, we don't talk about it so much that people miss that we're here and that we are able to like build and maintain like a life here, right? And an identity here. Um, and so just like having that access, having that visibility makes people understand like this is actually a great place to be and it always has been a great place to be and will always be a great place to be. We just have to talk about it, right? And I just, I wanna give each of you a chance. Is there something that we haven't discussed yet that you think is important to the communities you're working with uh, in terms of building better inclusion, building a better base of diversity in the first state? Uh, Jalissa, do you have some something you feel is needs to be heard? Sure, definitely. So I agree. I'm echoing what Allison and Noah um, are saying about the importance of history. We all know that history is absolutely important. It's, in, it's important for us to see how far we've come and where we're headed, right? That's absolutely hope, instills hope in, in a lot of cases. I would love to see, um, Allison had mentioned it a bit about the bill that passed um, by Sherry Dorsey Walker, who I just absolutely love and think is incredible. Um, to teach black history in schools. Um, there was also a bill, and I forgot who the person was who passed it, um, to teach Holocaust history in the schools. I would just have loved, you know, Delaware is known for working in silos. And so this is an example of us working in silos, right? It would have been incredible if we all just got together and said, first of all, indigenous native history needs to be taught first, the correct way, right? not this, um, what we've been taught up until now. Um, and then, you know, the contributions of the LGBT community in Delaware, the contributions of the Latinx community in Delaware, in addition to all of these histories, we had a fantastic opportunity, instead of working in silos, really changing comprehensively how history is taught in the state of Delaware and what um, women's history meant, you know, every type of history that we can imagine just do a total overhaul but by what we've been taught so far. And so I'm looking forward to um, to that happening in Delaware very, very soon. But that absolutely needs to be something that we need to focus on, is starting with indigenous history first. First and foremost, I, I am very passionate about, we cannot have any conversation about race, diversity and inclusion without the native indigenous community leading it. Um, and then, um, you know, just overhauling how things are done here, so. Allison, is there something that we haven't touched on that you think is important that, that we, we bring up? 
Well, I think I'll just echo what Jalissa just said, that this was, uh, in a sense, a missed opportunity in that it was focusing on Black history, which is a fantastic thing, and then Holocaust history. And one of the ways that we at UD, there's a committee in the UD Anti-Racism Initiative that's working on secondary ed and social studies teaching and we have a variety of professors who are working uh, with some of their student teachers, uh, people who are uh, studying to become teachers, and teachers in uh, various districts in Delaware to try to put together and make sure that there is um, adequate and good programming on Indigenous and Latinx history in the state of Delaware. And um, it's not part of a bill, but they've been doing it through grants and through a National History Council uh, kind of work. You know, and there, so there are other ways that we're trying to address it to make sure that as teachers are thinking about how to change their curriculum, we can do it in a more inclusive and holistic way. And so um, that is something that is definitely on people's radar because it doesn't make sense to change one part of it and leave the other part out. So hopefully that can spread and we can create uh, we are working on creating, you know, packages of material and kind of ma material that the teachers have been working on with um, the students and faculty to kind of create um, some teaching modules, if you want to put it that way, that will help address some of these questions. And then we'll come back to you. Uh, is, is there something we haven't discussed that, that you feel is important that, that people hear about? Yeah, we've definitely, we've definitely touched on it. But again, just like making sure that when we are talking about communities that they are the first ones involved, right? This cannot be um, even just like minorly consulting with the people that we're serving. Like we need to be completely in partnership, step-by-step step with the people um, that we're supposed to be working towards. And then remembering that like progress is not like a pie, right? Like it's not like this zero sum kind of game. One group moving forward doesn't mean that no one else gets to move forward. And so making sure that again, we're not working in these silos, we're not, um, fighting so hard for one specific agenda to be heard that we are pushing down other people to get there. Like we, we can all, we are so close to creating this inclusive, beautiful Delaware, which it, it's already on its way, but making sure that we know like we can all work together. We can meet these really common goals um, because we're not also different. We're not, we're all not all working towards these very different things, um, but making sure that we're all working together because we're almost there. We're like, we have all the tools that we need. We just have to get there. We started this conversation by asking for kind of a grade on Delaware's efforts on inclusion and diversity so far. I want to finish by asking each of you, what is your level of optimism for the future of those things in Delaware? Um, Allison, we'll start with you. I'm very optimistic because I think that people want change and the, the younger generation is motivated and inspired and inspiring. And all that we need to do is work collaboratively together and we will achieve quite a few of the goals that we've been talking about today. Jalissa, how about you? Your level of optimism that, that Delaware can, can, can get to where you would like it to go? Absolutely very optimistic. I, I've said it so many times. I love Delaware. I think it's a fantastic state. I think it's a very peaceful state and um, it's a very open state. And so our elected officials 
um, are very accessible that you could um, reach out to someone and say, hey, I've had this thought, you know, can we work together to, to try to make something happen? And that in itself is just a beautiful thing. I think the residents here are all just very um, kind and positive and just um, want to live a peaceful life. We all have that commonality, but I'm very optimistic about the future of Delaware. We're already seeing some very, very incredible changes that are happening, and I'm very, very proud of that. No, you said we're almost there. Is, is that a sign of your optimism? Oh, for sure. I'm completely optimistic. I, You can always quote me. I think Delaware is the best state. I think this is the best place in the entire world. I think we're the best people. I think that we genuinely care about each other and care about progress. And from my experience, a lot of those gaps that we talked about between what we say and what we can do isn't because of a lack of want or a lack of trying. It's often just like a lack of direction, a lack of funding, a lack of understanding, a lack of knowing who and how to partner with people. And so I think in Delaware, we have a very clear attitude of if something comes up that's discriminatory, we don't do that in Delaware. It's like a very clear, like, whoa, we don't do that here. Like, that's not what we're about. Or if something positive comes up, yeah, that's what Delaware stands for. That's what we, we work towards. I'm completely optimistic that we will get there. We just have to figure out the best logistic way to get there. And that's, that's just, you know, that's just details. We can always do that. University of Delaware History Department Chair and Co-Chair of UD's Anti-Racism Initiative, Allison Parker, and clinical social workers, Jalissa Coriano and Noah Duckett, co-founders of Orgullo Delaware. I want to thank each of you for joining us on this edition of the More Perfect Union podcast. We really appreciate the conversation and the insight you provided us today. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here in conversation. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to this episode of the A More Perfect Union podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to strengthen communities by encouraging all Delawareans to be inspired, informed, and engaged through exploring the diversity of human experience. We thank the National Endowment for the Humanities for its support as part of its A More Perfect Union initiative, designed to demonstrate and enhance the critical role the humanities play in our nation while supporting projects that help Americans commemorate the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence in 2026. A More Perfect Union is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR News.